I want you to imagine that you are out on a date with your wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, someone special, and you decided to go to a dinner theater. You go, you have the theater chosen, and you think you know what you're going to get. You're expecting some sort of a comedy, something fun and light. You sit down, there's a nice candle flickering on your table, and over to your left, you see the red burgundy curtain down, waiting for the play to begin, and you're eating this lovely meal with this special person. And as your dinner's winding up, the play's about to start. The waiter comes and clears your table, and then you turn your chair toward the stage, and the lights dim, and the curtain goes up. And what do you see? Up on a bench, you have with long, white, curly hair, God, Yahweh. He's wearing the black robes of the judge. He's got his gavel right there up on the bench. Down below, next to, you can see lower on the stage, is a very pathetic looking person. Bandaged around the head, black eye, looks like this person's gone through it. They've been beaten. They're in the criminal box. You know that whoever this person is did something wrong. It's, it's Israel. And then coming center stage onto the platform, the herald declares. Isaiah 1 verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For Yahweh has spoken. And then the judge slams his gavel down and says, Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And in the criminal's box cowering the beat-up Israel. And the audience leans forward to see who, how's this going to turn out. Then entering stage left, you have two characters. Heaven and earth enter. The herald had said, hear, O heavens and earth. Moses, we realize as we see them come out onto stage, Moses had declared to Israel, if you ever fall away from my commands, this is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25 and 6, He said, if you ever turn away from my commands, I command heaven and earth to testify against you. Ooh, heaven and earth are here to testify against Israel. This has gotten serious. So heaven comes out with her blue robes studded with silver stars and moons. Earth comes out in his forest camo. And they lay into Israel. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Look, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises 
and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Now our defendant, our criminal Israel speaks in a very battered, weak voice. If Yahweh of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You can hear heaven and earth now. Like Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> Verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And now God the judge speaks. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And then you can see the judge come down from the bench and come real close to Israel's face and say, when you come to appear before me, who, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And leaning even closer. Come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now, you thought you were coming to comedy. And suddenly, you're sitting very tensely in your chair, listening to all this. Poor Israel. Well, heaven and earth continue their testimony in verse 21. And this is where it gets really intense. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. And then, looking up at all the president's boxes up above you where the rich people sit, the play gets out of hand. Because now heaven and earth don't just look at Israel, they look at the rich up in the boxes 
And now they start to look at you and everyone gets uncomfortable. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. The judge pounds the bench. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Heaven and earth's turn. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake Yahweh shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oak that you desired. You, and they're pointing at us, the audience, it's uncomfortable. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Then the curtain falls And the lights come back on and you look at your dinner partner with big eyes and say, what was that? Well, you get up, you use the restroom, you stretch your legs. There's a buzz among everyone. What happened to the comedy we came to see? I don't know. This isn't very funny. Do you think they're actually seriously talking about us? I felt a little something when they were talking, like they were reading my mail. This is not comfortable. Let's see how the second act goes. We'll give it one more chance. You settle back down. The lights dim. and You know it's about to start again. Act two, the curtain rises. And this time, it's taking center stage, is a new character. He's tall. He's muscular. I'm totally making this up. It's just an imagination. He's tall and he's muscular and he's got wild hair. The hair you imagine on a prophet with a thick, good beard. (laughs) And he thunders with his voice. The herald begins, actually, as the curtain rises. The herald announces, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. A light applause. And now this this wonderful-looking man named Isaiah speaks. It shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths For out of Zion shall come the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. You turn to your partner and say, so far much better. I like this Isaiah guy. And you see a little glimmer, a little smile in his face as he gives us his soliloquy. And then Israel, the beaten criminal over in the box, lifts her weak, feeble head 
because she heard the good news and says, Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. But then Isaiah's smile turns a little more sinister. Verse 6. He looks at the judge, walks closer to his bench. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Look how cute. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Talking to the judge. And turn to the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of Yahweh, from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. For Yahweh of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground, and from before the terror of Yahweh, from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth in that day. Mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. They will cast them away to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of Yahweh, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man, talking to the judge, in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? For behold, chapter 3, Yahweh, God of hosts, is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the captain and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And the audience suddenly realizes they can breathe again. And now the judge beats the bench with his gavel. Verse four, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day, he will speak out, saying, ah, No, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. Isaiah, 
For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against Yahweh, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces, just look at that criminal in the box, the look on their faces. And then he points at you, the look on their faces, all glutted with dinner, witnesses against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt him, he shall have done to him. My people, infants, are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The sound of footsteps. The herald dares come back on stage. Yahweh has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. Yahweh will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. Bang, bang, the judge speaks. It is you... Who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor? Verse 16, he continues. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty. And walk with outstretched necks. Glancing wantonly with their eyes. Mincing along as they go. Tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and Yahweh will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags the mirrors, the linen garments, and turbans, and veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. Chapter 4, And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Then Isaiah steps forward, a little smile on his face this time. In that day, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning then Yahweh will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her, her, her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. 
For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. And the curtain goes down and you are now completely confused about what you are witnessing. We're guilty, yet we're going to be saved. We are in for it, yet good things are coming. Ah, this God fellow seems angry. This Isaiah fellow seems somewhat okay. What is going on? And now, by now, you're chattering with people, not just at your table, but the next table. Suddenly, we're all becoming friends because we all equally feel like we need to know what our fate is. We are terrified for what's coming down upon us. And before you know it, the lights dim again, the curtain goes up, and the final and third act is upon you. Ready or not, it comes. Oh, good, you whisper. Isaiah is starting this act. Chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. Ooh, now it's opera. We didn't see this coming. Isaiah's going to sing for us. My beloved had a vineyard. I'm not singing. On a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built it He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Oh, no. The light now shifts to the back of the stage where the judge is at the bench. He beats it again with his gavel. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and its and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the rain clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Oh, good, Isaiah's back on. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry, pointing at the condemned. And then, making sure you understand, you too. Isaiah paces across the stage, takes a deep breath, holds up six fingers, and he lets us have it. Six woes are coming. Verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. You are made and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Yahweh of hosts has sworn in my hearing. Surely, the judge speaks, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. We don't know what that means, but the audience around you gasps and you get the sense the land is going to stop yielding food. Isaiah continues in verse 11, holding up his sec two fingers. 
Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may drink or that they may run after strong drink and tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of Yahweh or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Shul, that place of death, has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude shall go down. Her revelers and all who exult in her man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But Yahweh of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then, then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. He holds up a third finger. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come, that we may know it. For woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Five, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Six, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of Yahweh of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets for all his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, Quickly, speedily they come. None is weary. None stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if anyone looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light, the light is darkened by its clouds. The curtain falls, the lights shine, and your jaw is to the floor. And everyone walks out saying, what just happened We aren't going back to that comedy again. I hope you can see that Isaiah begins his prophecy very dramatically. 
You will see next week in chapter 6 that chapter 6 is the way most prophets start with their calling. Chapter 6, Isaiah is going to be called by God to become his prophet. Jeremiah and Ezekiel get their callings in the first verses of their books. See what Isaiah does here is he opens the, the book with a drama. Now, I don't know how literally the drama would have been as I portrayed it to you. That's why we just stuck with reading the text. But it definitely had some dramatic elements with different voices in it. And he's getting the people to lean in and say, what is this? Now, Isaiah. Isaiah has been called by some, and some books are titled this way. It's been called by some the fifth gospel. Because this prophecy is amazing in how it foresees Christ. And in addition to this, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Isaiah and Psalms, but Isaiah has the edge. Over 400 quotes, citations, or allusions, over 400 are in the New Testament about Isaiah. 400. Now, I want you to consider this. My Bible, the New Testament in my Bible is 230 pages. The average New Testament is somewhere in the ballpark of 300 pages. Now, I said 400 references or quotes to Isaiah. You do the math. We are looking at more than one reference to Isaiah per page of the New Testament. In my Bible, we're looking at two, almost two references to Isaiah per page. That's the average. Do you think Isaiah was just a so-so mundane book to the New Testament authors? <laughs> no. The followers of Jesus clearly saw something in Isaiah that was so important they would cite it over and over and over. Now, 400 references. Something about this book, and hopefully we will catch that something as we go through it. The other number I want you to know is not just 400, it's 66 Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. It's very big. Many have pointed to, and I, it's so odd, that I don't know if you can call this coincidence. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah mirrors the 66 cha- uh, books in the Bible. There are 66 books. Now, this is where it gets even weirder. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27. Isaiah is all judgment through the first 39 chapters of the book. So look forward to that. It's all judgment for the first 39 chapters. In chapter 40, the tone changes dramatically. It's the passage that John the Baptist cites when he says that he's preparing the way for Jesus. The New Testament opens with the citation from Isaiah 40, and Isaiah 40 shifts into this message of grace for the next 27 chapters, mirroring the 27 books of the New Testament. Isaiah 40 starts with comfort, comfort my people, for you have paid double for your sin. The language there is saying, look, you are now going to be rescued. I am going to pour all my grace into you. And the whole sec- that whole part of Isaiah from 40 on is all about this coming Savior, about a future heavens and earth. It's a very exciting part of the book. So just bear through the first 39 and then you will appreciate the last 27. Make sense? So, you know, you could say, well, it's just a coincidence because the chapters are man-made. I don't know if you knew that, but 
humans just went in and scrawled chapters to kind of help us navigate. Like, where in Isaiah are you? The middle. There's a lot in the middle. Uh, chapter 50, you know, oh, okay. We put those there. Um, and I don't know that anybody intentionally, as far as I know, we don't know if anybody intentionally said, well, let's make Isaiah 66 chapters to mirror the Bible. I and mean, why didn't they do that with every other book? Um, maybe it's a coincidence, or maybe God had something in that, or maybe someone had a great idea. I don't know, but there it is. 400 references in the New Testament, 66 chapters mirroring the 66 books of the Bible. How are we going to approach this book? We're going to approach it like a symphony, like a symphony. You, if you have a bookmark with you, you will notice that we've broken Isaiah, and this is a universal breakdown for the book, widely agreed among all, almost all commentaries, that there's three parts to this book. Um, there's the first movement. The first movement is the prophet's judgment. And you're going to see that for the first 39 chapters. The second movement is the poet. And the poet is going to give comfort to the people. And that's going to be chapters 40 through 55. Then the third movement is going to be the preacher's hope. The preacher is going to preach hope through the last uh, 56 to 66. So we have a prophet judging the people. We have a poet comforting the people. You need that. You've been beat up. You recognize you're a sinner. I don't know what I do. Well, God comes and says, it's okay. Go and sin no more. Remember, he says to the adulterous woman, he comes and brings comfort. And then knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that we are okay with the God of the universe, that that dramatic scene of judgment is actually going to turn out okay in the next play, if you ever come back to the theater, um, you then find out that the preacher will say there's hope. So we're caught in our sin, but we find comfort in our forgiveness and grace. And then we look to the third movement of what all of this is going to. Now, symphonies um, are dynamic, right? They swell with these, these obnoxious sounds of great joy. And then they go really low quiet, suspenseful. They have some really deep minor keys and some really ecstatic major keys. And they, they just take you through a journey. If you ever just listen to like Beethoven and Mozart from beginning to end, not just like a little snippet, but you listen to the whole like 40-minute symphony, it can be quite an experience. And reading Isaiah is a lot like listening to Mozart. It's beautiful. It's diverse. It's dynamic. And like symphonies, it's got three, so they have three to four movements. Isaiah's three movements. So often, like, you know, Mozart will start with, like, a very stormy opening. It's a lot of chaos. So does Isaiah. And then it goes into the second movement. It's kind of calms. Like, let's give the listeners a break. And you can kind of just mellow it. It's very true. The second movement in most uh, concertos or symphonies is just very calming. And then the third movement's got to wrap this up. And it's exciting. And it's like sending everybody out on a high. And so does Isaiah. So we're going to look at it as a symphony. It's the Savior symphony. And it's, it's, it's featuring him as the front celloist or the front violinist or the pianist. The one who's tinking away in front of all the orchestra. And it, it mirrors and echoes him. It's, it's, it's quite a book. So that leads us then to comparing Isaiah with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So we have three major prophets in the Bible, three major prophets. Isaiah is the third that we're studying. Now, major prophets, um, we, we're, we're on the third, we're then going to look at the, after Isaiah, we're going to look at the 12 minor prophets. 
And the reason they're called major and minor has nothing to do with their message being more important than the others. If that was true, who cares about the minor prophets? Let's not even deal with them. The major ones are where it's at, right? Um, and nor, nor does that have anything to do with the symphony and the, the key of the music. It doesn't have anything to do with that either. Um, what it means is that it's determining how big the books are. A minor prophet simply is a small book, but it might have more punch to its size, right? Never underestimate shortness. And the major... Why is that funny? And the major prophets... Um, major prophets... They're larger in their size. Like, Isaiah 66 chapters... Well, you get to Obadiah, you've got one chapter. Like, that's the difference. So major just has to do with size, okay? It doesn't have to do with they're better than the others. So we're in our third of the three major prophets... You might remember we started with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, just think of as the weeping prophet. Because Jeremiah seemed to be squirting tears left and right. Every time something happened, God, why me? Why did you? He didn't want to be a prophet. Do you remember how much he complained? And he accused God. Why did you not let me die when I was born? Instead, you made me a prophet? And everybody hates me and they want to kill me. My own hometown doesn't like me. He was whining and crying. And you might remember there were seven lamentations throughout Jeremiah where they were written as grief and mourning uh, poems. And we looked at one of them, and I said something very embarrassing in that message. If you remember, you know what I'm talking about. Um, then there's Ezekiel. We just finished. So Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Ezekiel is the weird prophet. Because Ezekiel did weird things. Now, you might remember. He not only saw weird things. It opened with this vision of God. And rather than like what you would imagine, like flowing locks and rippling muscles and a nice smile, like rather than that, he sees this contraption of sorts. It's like a throne with a big bubble and like a glass floor. And it's on top of four animals that have four faces and all these wings. And they're being driven by this wheel, but it's a wheel within a wheel. And he's like trying to explain this. And you and I are like, UFO? <laughs> but that's not it at all. He's, seeing, he's trying to describe something majestic, right? So he starts with a weird message, first of all. Then he does weird things. Remember, he has to lie down on his side for over a year. And then when that's done, he has to go on the next side and lie down on that side for a few months. And while he's lying on his side, he's not allowed to cut his hair. It's all growing ragged and crazy. And people are coming around just to watch the crazy prophet laying around in the street. And with him, to entertain himself and the masses, he has little G.I. Joe action figures. God told him to take bricks and mark them. This is the city of Jerusalem. These are the armies that are coming against it. He's playing army men there in the dirt. And on top of all of that, when people come around saying, what is this crazy prophet doing? He's so weird. Hey, Ezekiel, get a haircut. Ezekiel, I, my daughter just gave up her dolls and she's three. Ezekiel, grow up. Get a job, dude. Like, while everybody's saying this, he's not allowed to talk. God made a mute for that whole time. Yeah, he was the weird prophet, right? The weeping prophet, the weird prophet. So that brings Isaiah. Isaiah should be known as the thundering prophet. Because, yeah, while Jeremiah had a lot of sorrow in his life, and Ezekiel did a lot of weird enactments, Isaiah is just pure poetry, pure power, pure beauty, pure majesty. That's why many people gravitate to this book. Perhaps one of the reasons why it's so quotable. Um, and then the last piece of introduction to this book is 
its actual like literacy, like how it's written. And that is that we need to acknowledge a, a, a large, large portion of Isaiah is poetry. It's poetry. And, and the reason this is important is because poetry speaks differently than prose. Once upon a time, there was a prophet who said these words. The people got angry. The people did this. The people repented. He then went and ate dinner with his wife, who asked him how his day was. He then went back out. with an, He went up to his office to work on his next sermon. The next day, he went out and declared it. Five people were listening. Like, that's prose, right? You're giving us a line of events. But poetry takes things that are hard to describe and gives us words and metaphors and tries to describe it in a way that gets the listener to lean in. But, but beyond this is that the poetry is meant to speak to the heart and not the head. It's meant to speak to the heart and not the head. So think of Paul in the New Testament. and all his letters, there are arguments. And there is a lot of like doctrine. And Paul is like, he's, he's addressing problems and giving solutions. And you're trying to follow along. And sometimes he's so deep and complex that you're like Peter who actually admits, yeah, you guys know how hard Paul is to read. He actually says that. Uh, Paul, you know, he's all head. And unless you've got a sharp mind, he can, for like all of us, he can be hard to follow. But Isaiah, poetry, the prophets are trying to get to the gut. They're trying to get to the heart. They want you not just to hear the truth of God's word, but they want you to feel it. They want you to have emotional reactions to the words. Because Isaiah is addressing the human relationship with the Holy One of Israel. Yahweh, God. Isaiah does not want the people coming to him like this thing that they've got figured out. They want them, he wants them feeling the separation they're experiencing. He wants them to feel the remorse for their sin. He wants them to feel the excitement of the coming future times Isaiah's foreseeing. He wants to move the heart of the people. So, Remember that as you read through Isaiah. Try to feel what the prophet wants you to feel. Another reason for that is because this is where relationships happen. They don't happen on an intellectual level, you know? Brittany and I, my wife Brittany, we're not close because I know a catalog of information about her. What is Brittany like? And if I tell you her height and what she drives and the things she likes to do in her free time, what chapter she is on in her current book, like if I tell you those things, you're like, okay, nice, but what is Brittany like? Not what does she like. What is she like? Well, now I have to go to a different level of knowing, right? And so Isaiah wants to bring the people to a place where they have to start asking the hard questions and reflecting upon their relationship with the I am who I am. Not, well, we know that when we sin, we're supposed to bring this offering at this time and this priest is to handle it that way. And yes, we went to the temple and sang 13 psalms in this order and we did that prayer. He doesn't want that from the people. You heard me read early in Isaiah 1 that God got in Isaiah's face and said, your rituals make me sick. So we need to understand God in a different way. And that's what Isaiah is trying to pull on. So I want us to look at chapter 1, verse 18. Now let me remind you, 1, verse 18, this is right after 
Yahweh was telling them. Like you'll see in verse 111, just to lead up to 18, 111, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat and the well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Notice how detailed he's talking about the offerings, the different kinds and such. Because he's talking to a people who understand their religion. They understand their religion. They understand all the things they need to do to look good, to play the part, to appease the priests and the powers and to look socially acceptable. They know those things, but they don't know the one behind those things, right? So God's like, I'm so tired of your headiness about your faith and your religion. You're just me, 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 going through these motions. And then in verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. By the way, another thing poetry is supposed to do is not just tell us the words of God, but it's also supposed to show us the heart of God, the soul of God, right? Because it goes through emotional ups and downs. So there you see, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Oh my goodness. If God tells you tonight, I am sick of you going to church. <laughs> you shouldn't need to do a little heart to heart with God because something's wrong, okay? Something's wrong if he's sick of you going to church, but doesn't say, I'm sick of you watching TV. Like when God is more okay with you watching TV than going to church, your heart is in a really, really, really bad place. So that leads us to verse 18. When And I, of course, I'm just imagining a much more intimate tone, leaning closer to beaten Israel and saying, come now. Like, yes, you've enraged me in some areas, but I still want you near. That's the whole reason I'm raising my voice. I want you near. Come now. Let us reason together. And he there he invites them to have a clean start. Your sins are like scarlet. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. This beautiful picture of a new start, a cleansing. But this invitation to come now. Let us reason, right? The New King James, the English Standard Version, that's how they say it. Let us reason together. Um, great translation. I'm not at all going off for the others because these are weak. I think, you know what my um, professor told me way back in school was, if you don't understand the original languages, just read English translations because they will get you a sense of what's behind that word. That's good advice. Because like one translation is not always enough to describe another language's word. So what is behind this let us reason together? Is God asking for us to come and bring our minds together and agree on something? Let's have a rational discussion about the proper timing to gut your goat at the altar. <laughs> you must be like, uh, no thanks. No, that's, that's not it at all. So to give us a broader view here, even in my Bible, there's a footnote on the word reason so that means if you have the ESV, you have this footnote too. It says, or dispute. This Hebrew word can mean dispute. So when it says, come now, let us reason, it means, come, let's dispute this. Um, yeah, discuss this. Let's settle this. Let's 
argue this out. So those are some of the ways other translations have said it. Let's settle this. Let's discuss this. Let's argue this out. All these are great. Let's reason together. You, I think you get the point. Is What he's doing is he's leaning in and he's inviting them to come near and let's talk. Let's talk. Now, you may have a reasonable talk, very calm like this. Yes, Father, what am I doing wrong? Okay, Father, I will correct that. No kid has ever <laughs> reasoned that way. Um, or it could be more like, how dare you? What do you mean, how dare you? How dare you? Bringing the Babylonians against us and wiping out our sisters up north. And You have your own talk style with God, and that's okay. I'm serious. Some of us fight with God. Some of us argue with God. And someone here knows somebody that does. I just heard him whisper that really loud. <laughs> and she leaned over to Mary as she said that. So I <laughs> put on love with Mary. Um, yeah, we have some people fight and argue with God. They yell at him. You know what? I don't think that God is easily offended by our tone with him. Because what it appears he's offended by is the previous verses our mundane zombie-like worship where we're going through these actions to look religious, to get the applause of people, to look socially acceptable, but to not really have any care, concern, or relationship with God. We're just all into the ritual of our religion. Get this down. Make sure everything's proper and in place. And God's like upset with that. And he's actually inviting him. You know what? If you got a problem with me, why don't you just come yell at me instead of bypassing me through religious forms bypassing me with religious forms do you know how often we do that when you think about it there's something really unsettling going on but you just kind of go into your bible reading or prayer just like normal no everything's fine god yep see i'm here please speak to me fill me up with your spirit and help me to be kind to that jerk and how many times do we continue to play the normal role of our faith in order to ignore something that's bubbling or boiling beneath the surface? God would far rather have us scream and shout and argue and call him unfair than to have us do what we do in conflict a lot. Avoid it. Pretend it doesn't exist. Or sweep it under the rug. Now, I think he's okay with go ahead and argue with me because first of all, God can take it. I don't know if you realize this, but he's always right. <laughs> you will learn that. And that, I think, is the benefit of arguing with God is sometimes if I'm suppressing all this, I can actually be angry with him but not aware of it. And we see Christians who are angry at God but what they do is they channel that anger at him into zealousness. And I don't mean like a really good kind of zealous, like they just want to pray with you and pour their lives into you, but this kind of zealous that takes the Bible and wants to bash it over every other American's head who doesn't do what they do, doesn't go to the kind of church they go to, doesn't see everything the way they see it, um, doesn't have the same political views. They just want to slash and throw the sword around. 
And you can't help, and you know you've seen this, when you can't help but wonder, why are you so mad? Who are you mad at? The answer is God. They're actually mad at God, but they're diving so deep into their religion, trying to fix the relationship in the wrong way. Because we are driven by this idea of perfection in which I can't yell at God. I can't admit I'm mad at God. That is wrong. Well, like nothing else you do is wrong. But see, our, we fear having to admit there's something wrong because we want this image of perfection. And it's true. Deep down inside, even though we're not, we know we're saved by grace, we want somehow to make everything perfect with God. We want to achieve that level. And so we try not to be honest about what's really going on. But that perfection is keeping us away from a true conversation and is driving us into this really unhealthy expression of our religion. He wants the relationship back. And he's inviting you, come just scream in my face if you have to. Because sometimes all people need to do is be heard to feel better. Like, you know, when someone has something to tell you and they just let it all out and you never even actually answered their problem, but they just suddenly are happier because someone listened to them scream and shout. God is here for us. He's not like afraid of us and we don't have to be afraid of him. We can come and reason, argue, dispute, settle this together. And when we get our say, we'll realize at some point, and you may have a long, 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 long soliloquy for him. But some months down the road, it'll hit you. How come you're still hearing nice to me? And then you get it. Because I've always been that way to you. You just needed some time to learn that. Um, or do you get it all out? And then you're like, oh. Turns out I don't really have as good of a beef with you as I thought I did. You know, I can walk around incredibly frustrated by a lot of things, but once I actually air all the things I'm frustrated about and hear myself, I'm like, wait, is that really it? Oh, I guess it's not that bad after all. Or you keep talking and you realize, oh yeah, you are right in the end. It doesn't matter how he just wants us to talk come let's talk let's have a dialogue together that's when i can do work in your life let's put the broom down martha and come sit at my feet like mary because you're just busying yourself and i'm not just mean in religion we busy ourselves with tasks with things that we pretend are so important in life because they keep us away from the feet of the one we're upset with or the one we feel like we've offended and we're afraid to come before. Be careful. Be careful with that broom of distraction, the task, the important things. Be careful that those don't become excuses to avoid the invitation to let's talk. We're going to take communion, and this is a great time for you to talk with God. So I want to invite you tonight to do that. That's all God's saying. Let's talk. Let's talk. So I don't know what you have to say. And if it's nothing, friend, 
That's great. Sometimes it's God who wants to talk. And your silence is the best thing you can do because it means you'll actually listen. Let's talk doesn't mean here's the mic and never give it back. Let's includes him and you. So tonight he may talk to you. That's great. Tonight you may talk to him. That's great. Tonight you both may talk over one another and it'll make sense eventually. Or you may take turns in a civilized manner. Look, we all have our different styles because we're all at different seasons and have different needs. But all God is asking for us to do is come to me like a relationship. Come to me like your Savior, like your Lord, like your Father. And let me put my arms around you and we will sit down at a nice coffee shop drinking the manna of heaven, eating the manna of heaven, and talking with one another like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Father, I pray that you will open our ears, you will unloose the truth of what's inside of us so that we can talk honestly with you.